Hey everybody, welcome to Hacking Into Security, your career-related cybersecurity show. I'm your host, Ricky Burke, the InfoSec recruiter, and regularly we'll be catching up with a variety of guests from CISOs, entrepreneurs, VCs, new people into the industry, and more. Each sharing their story, industry knowledge, and advice on how others can navigate success in their career. So sit back, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Hacking Into Security. I'm your host, Ricky Burke, and today we're joined by Charles Vandervoldt. Charles, welcome. Morning, Ricky. Thank you. So Charles is the Head of Security Research over at Orange Cyber Defense and formerly SensePost. So definitely a lot to talk about today. And my first question for all guests is pretty simple, but who are you? My name is Charles. Thanks for pronouncing it so very well. And I'm a South African based in Cape Town based actually right out on the South Peninsula of Cape Town, on that little finger that sticks out of the bottom of Africa. So about as far away from anything as one can be. And I find myself working for Orange Cyber Defense, which is, I think, the largest European cybersecurity products and services provider. It's got to be a fair-sized business then. It's a fair-sized business. And of course, Orange Cyber Defense is part of the bigger Orange Networks, Orange Mobile family, yeah. which is a behemoth. You know, it's a, it's a massive business. And that's a whole new experience for me, actually, because SensePost, my previous employer, was a sort of relatively niche consulting company. So a whole new experience, yeah. So what do you do as head of security research for them? I, I try and make us look smart, I guess. <laughs> but seriously, it's, it's a new role. It's a new position, a new division that, that was established when Orange Cyber Defense in its current state was created only in February this year. And really my job is to understand the security landscape, understand what's happening now, but also kind of what's driving it, what's creating the reality that we that we sit in today, and then empower other people with that understanding. And those other people are first and foremost our customers. And then next our our operations. So we you know we run uh, managed detection response, vulnerability management, incident response, consulting. It's all kinds of things that we do. And part of my job is to make sure that those people understand the landscape and are responding appropriately to, to changes. And that's all the way through, as I said, you know, from the socks that manage the firewalls for our customers through to product selection, uh, strategic direction, all of that. I sort of need to inform that. And then finally, I work with our marketing teams to produce what we call thought leadership. So those are the kind of white papers you have to, you know, fill your name in a form to get. Me and yeah. my team uh, produce those. Yeah, you, you do a lot of interesting stuff, actually. I mean, upon, I guess, researching yourself and, and, and this pod before the podcast, and there's a lot of good videos and white papers and, yeah, I guess, again, fair-sized business, but you're definitely producing some good info out there. I, th I think we're getting there. I'm proud of what I'm proud of what we've done. I think we could do more, but I'm trying to do it well, so it's not too much of a of a rush. And what I enjoy, and and what kind of Orange Cyber Defense promised me when I joined up, and have been really respectful of, is that you know I'm given a lot of space to to explore the issues that I think are important and interesting, and kind of get un under things, if you like rather than just kind of reflecting common common wisdom or cliched, cliched mm -hmm. ideas. And, and I must say the whole leadership of, of Orange Cyber Defense is quite committed to that idea. And so they take quite a lot of flack on my behalf too, you know, <laughs> when we scratch maybe where it's a little bit uncomfortable. Generally, actually, I'm quite well supported. And that's been very rewarding for me. 
That's good. So you mentioned the role is is quite new, and I guess with prior sense posts and yourself, I mean, you've got a really strong track record in the industry itself, and lots of interesting things you've done and presentations around the world. So if, if we can, I guess, take a step back, how did it all come around? I guess getting into, into security in the first place. Yeah, you know, I I wonder about that often myself. You know, how did it all happen? And and I have to say, I think a lot of it, which is maybe quite frustrating for your, for, you know, for your audiences, a lot of it was just kind of you know good luck, right time, right place, which may have been the case I think for many people of of my generation. But what happened was I'd I'd been working, sorry, I'd been studying in Germany, and I got introduced to a fellow South African who happened to be in Germany in the time at the time. And it's someone uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with. He's a guy called Rulof Temming, who eventually went on to found SensePost with me and then moved on to found Turvo, which is the, the company that created Multigo. And so Rulof and I bumped into each other really via, via an introduction because we happened to be at the same place at the same time. I had, at the time, no idea of security. I had barely any idea of the internet. And Rulof just kind of painted this world for me that just sounded amazing and free and exciting and frankly a little bit sort of anarchistic and he eventually arranged an interview for me with the employer where I think at the time he was actually still interning and they were a South African company that had emerged out of government-sponsored research institute called the, the Center for Scientific and Industrial Research and the the CSIR and CSIR was was government funded and sort of ran various initiatives, often under the direction of the government, to you know develop technologies or understand things that the government was interested in. And at the time, South Africa was just emerging from apartheid, and and under apartheid we we were severely sanctioned, so you couldn't buy things that you wanted. You kind of had to build them, and so the CSR was building uh, you know everything from you know, armor for tanks to nuclear capabilities, but then also uh, data, what they called data security at the time, which mostly had to do with encryption. Wow. And, so and nanotech sort of spun out from that. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I think it, it was, it, it, you know, apartheid obviously is a, a real, you know, blot on our, on our history. But in that context, you know, where, where you are isolated, people can be resourceful. And there was a lot of investment and a lot of energy around defense, particularly, and data security was part of that. And so this 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 business had emerged in Pretoria, which is kind of right near the seat of, of government. And they were doing mostly things like crypto algorithms, crypto implementations in hardware for things like satellite communications, mobile phones at the time you know, voice and fax and sort of the traditional things that armies need and had just branched out into internet security kind of as the internet was starting to awaken in in Africa, I suppose, Mm -hmm. it's kind of in the mid nineties. And Rulof had had come out of university and started working for them in that division. And I ended up getting a job with him there too. And it was just an enormously interesting and exciting time because everything was, everything was new. You know, yeah. n- nobody knew anything. Everyone was sort of inventing stuff. And not not many of the players that we were competing with at the time still exist, but some, like like Checkpoint, you know, there was a time that we felt we were sort of going toe-to-toe with them. You know, they would have a feature and we would have a feature. Wow. You know, they were figuring things out and we were figuring things out. And so we did some, I think we did some really exciting things. 
but more importantly, very young, inexperienced, and I think, frankly, kind of underqualified people like myself and Rulof were able to participate in those projects simply by virtue of there being nobody else. You know, there just, <laughs> just wasn't. It just, it just wasn't. So we would sort of work directly with these very senior, very competent scientists, effectively, who were kind of inventing the stuff to try and make it work for, uh, for our customers. It's really cutting edge um, Yeah, it, it, I mean, looking back now, it seems, you know, <laughs> it seems very naive and, and oversimplified. But I think at the time it was cutting edge. Just, just by way of an anecdote, speaking of cutting edge, I mean, one of the things that one of our teams was experimenting with was data over power. You know, the, the, the idea that you can plug something on one side and plug it mm. on the other side and communicate. You know, we, ha- we had built a system that could do it. And it, people were kind of looking for an application for it. You know, well, what do we actually do? And the, yeah. the one idea that <laughs> came up was that we could, we could link it to an IDS and have the IDS talk to a rack, you know, to effectively have like an emergency shutdown, you know, hard shutdown yeah. feature. And uh, we had this very also antiquated IDS that you know, worked on very simple rules. And we had a series of firewall products. And, and basically, we, we architected this thing for a, for a big customer, where if the IDS detected certain kinds of events, it would send a signal to the, to the plug effectively that would shut the firewalls down. And they so convinced someone to actually let us plug it in somewhere. And of course, it ran for about four hours before there was complete unmitigated disaster and panic everywhere. And then we took it out. So, yeah, cutting edge isn't always good. No, or some good learning experiences, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, we learned we learned a lot. And you know, as you and I were saying earlier, it's a small world. So, so Rudolf and I particularly built some good relationships with. Again, sort of way above our, our our punching weight, if if you like, you know, with 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 banks and and big companies here in South Africa, but also abroad. And so, after about three years of of doing that, we we became a little disgruntled with with the business. You, you know, we were talking earlier about businesses being bought. So, so Nanotech, the business I was working with, got got acquired, and that that changed a lot of the culture, changed the direction, and we felt very kind of very lost and confused in it all. One evening of tequilas, I suspect <laughs> we, you know, we were sort of discussing our future and trying to navigate, you know, you know what was going to happen and where should we go and how should we align and what jobs should we accept and not accept. And it just occurred to us that there was sort of one way to to really know what your future was going to be, and that's to kind of define it for yourself. And so we left and we and we decided to start our own business, which we then called SensePost. And Rulof was already very, very interested in the, you know, the, the sort of dark side of the, of the moon, if you like, the, you know, the red team side. And so we thought, well, let's, let's try and do pen testing. And we had very little to lose because, you know, we were young we didn't have families. We didn't have debt. We felt quite confident that we would get another job if we, you know, if we tanked. So we kind of just set out on a woman, a prayer. Yeah. You know, the next thing we knew we had an actual business with actual things and an actual office and actual people working for us. Did you have a particular focus to start with? Well, yeah, we, we sort of contrived to to define a set of services that obviously we thought makes made sense. And some of those ideas held actually, I think almost still today. But many of them were, you know, completely wrong and, and, and didn't <laughs> go anywhere. But yeah, the, it, the, I mean the, the the focus was to do was to do pen testing for large businesses. Basically, we, we sort of went around with this scrap of paper on which we'd kind of written the idea down. 
to the people that we'd worked with previously at the banks and insurance companies and utilities and stuff and said, look, this is what we want to do. And nobody really understood it. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't, it wasn't a product yet. Wow. There were some businesses in the States that had, that had started. So, I mean, we, we didn't invent the idea by, by any means, but certainly in, you know, in the, in the South African context, it, it was a very new idea. We had one customer who at a bank who literally took our, our flyer that we'd written, turned it around and with a pen kind of wrote a proposal for himself on the, on the back of it and signed it and said, yeah, you can do this for me. Wow. And so, yeah, we got our start and we got a little bit of money from that and, you know, we could sort of build up from, build up from there. I mean, and again, this is, this is what, 20 years ago? It's 20 years ago. Yeah. More. It's more than 20 years ago now. Yeah. Wow. So <laughs> a, lot, a lot's changed. <laughs> you know, a lot, a lot has changed and bizarrely, and I'm really not sure what to make of this, but a lot hasn't changed. Yeah. You know, that the f- sort of fundamental value proposition in the pen testing space hasn't changed. I think the underlying dynamics hasn't changed. So, yeah, yeah I mean, that's a, it's a good thing, but it's, it's also in some ways disappointing. You know, when, when Rulof and I set out, we honestly didn't think that we had more than two years. You know, we thought we'll do this for two years and then these problems will be solved. You know, people will figure this stuff out and, and then there'll be nothing for us to, to, to do, you know? So I can't imagine I'd be back at the beach in Cape town after two years <laughs> and, you know, every six months or so we'd, we'd get together and sort of do a, a bit of a strategy session and try and understand where we were going. And every six months we'd say the same thing. This has got two years, maybe it's got five years, but then it's done. And wow. here we are 22 years later, the same things are happening. I mean, I'm in Australia, obviously you're in South Africa. You, you end up building, a, I guess, a business that was more than obviously just South Africa and, and a name that really went beyond. Like it's, it's to be honest, like even today, obviously again, SensePost is now part of Orange Cyber Defense, but as a name, SensePost is really well-known and respected across I guess, many countries and environments out there. Thanks. Yeah, I, I like to believe that's true. And I'm, and I'm very proud of that. You know, I often wonder, you know, what, what that is, why, you know, how, how we manage that. Uh, and, and I think there's, I think there's two things. I, I think there's, there's values. So we set out from the beginning to be a, a values-based business. And I think at the center of, of our value system, was was the idea of, of of enablement empowerment the idea that we could make other people smarter better you know more efficient and that really impacted the way we thought about everything so you know when, when you when you're doing a report for example on a on a finding your goal is really to educate the the, the customer it's a, it's a form of teaching experience and i and i Sort of really understood the role of the of the pen tester to be one of of learning and teaching, learning and teaching. So you're figuring something out uh, effectively, and then and then educating and empowering someone else to understand that thing and respond to it. And those those values we we managed to to really maintain. And I think I think they worked for us. You know, we, we sort of believed if if we stick to those values, then then success would follow, if you like. So the the first goal was that, and then after that came you know, well, how do we make money or how do we increase profits? And I, I think that served us very well. But then more practically, what it also did was it it led us into training because training seemed like a sort of a natural extension of that, you know, that way of thinking. 
And we, we had a, a, a remarkable and, and, and fortunate experience with Black Hat in particular, which was a real game changer for us. We'd managed to get a, a paper accepted, I think at DEF CON, 2002, 2003, something like that. And so I think Ruloff and myself, and I suspect it was Harun Mir who had, who had joined us by then. Nice. We shuttled over to, to Vegas and sort of wide-eyed and, and did our presentation. <laughs> And then we were lurking around and spying, frankly, on, on some of these training gigs that were happening, you know, by some of the big players at the time, companies that we really regarded and admired and, uh, you know, aspired to be like. And we sort of watched these courses and we thought, you know, actually, w- we could do that. And maybe we could even do it better than, than they're doing it. And so we reached out to Black Hat, people like Jeff Moss, Dark Tangent and, and Ping Look. And we said to them, would you give us a chance? And I think, honestly, you know, Jeff and Ping were, were remarkable visionary people who were excited about building community and wanted to expand what they were doing beyond, you know, I suppose, just the U.S. And I think they kind of just found us sort of cute and a little bit, you know, <laughs> quirky and interesting. You know, these funny guys, and these, these young guys with funny accents and, and big ideas. And, and they gave us a shot. They said, cool, you know give it a go. And we gave it a go. And I think that those values then enabled us to be successful in the training. And that really opened things up for us then, because then suddenly we were talking to a different market with different kinds of revenue. The world just opened up and we managed to kind of cross the Atlantic, if you like, you know, out of South Africa and into the rest of the world. And I, I kind of think that without, I'm not sure that w- without that, we would have gotten to where we'd gotten and it was really their I honestly think like their, their faith and, and generosity that enabled us to do that wow that's that's awesome and obviously you got on went on to also do more interesting things and as, as a business do really well out of interest what size did you get to before I guess being taken over or acquired so there's a there are a few phases because strangely enough we, we got acquired a few times. Uh, now, I won't bore you with all the sort of corporate shenanigans, <laughs> but we, uh, you know, we went through a season where uh, we, we, like myself and Jakub van Gran, who was had by that time become a director, Harun Mir, we sort of divested and then reinvested and then divested again. So, you know, we sort of kind of went in and out through a few different relationships. And I think at the, f- at the for the first, the first time we were at 30 people only. And then the the second time, maybe at 50. And then eventually, by the time we sold to Orange Cyber Defense, maybe 70, 70 people. Nice. Is that, and that's across South Africa and Europe? Across South Africa and Europe, yeah. So we, I would say the bulk of our of our people sat in Pretoria, where, you know, where Ruluf and I had started. And then we had opened an office in the UK and that had grown to about 20 people, I think, by that, by that time. Brilliant. And in terms of that process, uh, I guess eventually selling the company, what, how did that come around and, and what was that like for you? Yeah, you know, I, saw, I saw your question in the email uh, about, about that topic and, and it occurred to me that you know, selling a business is a little bit like having a child. You only do it once or twice and that barely qualifies you to, um, <laughs> you know, to comments. You know, you, it's, a, it's all a bit of a, an adventure and, yeah, it's just, it, it, I don't feel very confident to, to comment on, on on sort of you know what we did or why we did it because as I say you know we sort of went through each phase once and then it was done. 
But the reason was, the reason we sold was because the way we'd set up with myself, Rulof, Yaku, and, and Harun, was that we'd, we'd bound ourselves very tightly together into the business. The, the way we contracted with each other was we said, look, you can only, you can only own part of this business if, if you work for it, and you can only work for it if you, if you own it. And that created a real synergy, which, which, was, which was good for us. But it meant that your, your direction was sort of inextricably linked. You know, yeah. you had to be pulling in the same direction. And if somebody wanted to exit, because for whatever reason, it presented you with a real problem because they, they also had to divest, which meant you then also had to find somebody else to pick up that, that slack. And that created challenges for us. So, you know, we were a growing business. None of us really had money. So when somebody wanted to leave, the only choice we would have was to get another person in and there in their place. Yeah. And so eventually we decided that really the, the way to handle it was to collectively sell the business rather than, you know, be in a situation where some people were trying to sell and other people weren't. That's what drove it in the end. That's what, what took us to that decision. But, you know, having said that also, by that time, we'd been going almost 10 years and it was 10 intense years of deep investment, not just in you know, enormous amounts of, of time and energy and focus and but, but also in, in terms of our finances, you know, we were all kind of, you know, up to, up to our eyebrows in f- financial commitments to this, to this yeah. one, one business. And, you know, it, it felt like it might be a relief to, to change that. Time for a quick break. I'm Ricky Burke. In my full-time role, I'm the founder and director of CyberSec People, a leading cybersecurity recruitment company, where we support organizations across the US and APAC in hiring cybersecurity talent. Through our connections and reach into the security community, our deep industry knowledge, we save organizations time when hiring. We have a 98% success rate and a three-year track record that demonstrates we only have to send on average two applicants to find success. If your organization is hiring, reach out as we'd love to discuss what that means for you. In the meantime, thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And I guess you mentioned, obviously, I guess you don't feel maybe too qualified about giving advice as such, but I guess, I'm guessing there's things that you learned along the way about selling a business. I guess, were there any surprises during that sort of process and going through the, through that? I can think of a few, but perhaps the most useful one is to, is, is to start by thinking of, of the why. So why am I selling the business? In retrospect, you know, looking back now, I often question whether we whether we should have and whether we would have been wouldn't have been happy, you know, just staying with it. But one of the reasons that that we we felt we couldn't do that is because we we had this sense that the business has to grow, that it has to develop, that you have to be more successful, and maybe maybe that wasn't necessary. Maybe we didn't have to do those things. You know, maybe we could have stayed something else. And and so, uh, you, you know, I I think. You know, questioning your why. Why am I in it? What do I want to get out of it? I think that's 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 a big. I don't have an answer to it, but but I think that's the lesson that I learned. That you know, you really need to wrestle with that. So that was the one. And then I think the next one had to do with understanding who you're partnering with when you sell. So there are cases where you can sell a business sort of lock, stock, and barrel. You know, somebody hands over a check and you and you walk away. But most cases, that's not how it goes. Most cases, you're entering into some sort of relationship with the buyer, you know, whether that's 
because they're taking partial equity or because uh, there's an earnout or you know there's some there's there's something that perpetuates after the deal is done and the nature of that i think can have a huge impact and there's different kinds of buyers and each of them has their own why and getting behind that why uh, for them will help you to understand what the next few years of your life are likely to to look like and i think it's easy to be to be trapped there and to make mistakes by getting on board with with someone who's got a different why to you for example you know vc would be a would be a form of selling if you like you know you're selling part and that creates a relationship between them and your business which may be very different to your relationship with your business uh, on the other hand if you go with private equity they've got a different kind of why they've got a different business model and that's going to change how they view your business an angel investor might be the same yeah i, I think choosing your choosing your partner and and weighing the relative pros and cons of their why is a big deal and and then the third thing i was i suppose for us at the time uh, as a lesson is i i think we made some mistakes with with stock so i think we transacted in stock instead of cash in in some instances and you know as, as all the stories you hear will tell you you can do very well with that it can be can be great but it can also create a lot of a lot of problems and i think we made some mistakes in that sphere where we really should have engineered cleaner simpler transactions and we sort of allowed ourselves to get lured into you know what appeared to be more more lucrative deals but were based on funny money i think i think for us in some instances that was a mistake Wow, that's, that's uh, but but really for your listeners, the the, the the people to listen to on that sphere, I think have been thinking about it much more than me. Are, are guys like you know one of our directors at the time, one of our owners at the time was Harun Mir, who went on to found Thinkst. Yeah, uh, and he's in it again. You know, he's he's running his own business again, and doing really well. Well, talks about it a lot. Yeah, they've done really, they've done really well, and I mean Harun is is one of the reasons we were successful in the doubt. You know, possibly, you know, one of the smartest guys in the in the world. And uh, he contributed massively to our success. So I think on those questions, I, I would almost say, you know, Harun is thinking about that and talking about that more than than I have been. Um, so people should, yeah, keep an ear open for him. Okay, interesting. Okay, on a I guess really different type of note, I, I saw you do a presentation from back I think 2016, and then you were talking about threat intelligence, incident response, DevSecOps, IoT, things that are I guess depending on where you are in the world, pretty normal, or at least starting to emerge as quite normal, depending on your maturity levels. As someone who has focused or still does focus on maybe strategy and, and the sort of future of security, so what do you think about? And I guess what's interesting for you? Yeah, so you know, I get asked this question often in my job, and I, I suppose I should be better at answering it. But, <laughs> but I find it an you know I find it an incredibly difficult question to answer. It's easy to see the some of the technology trajectories, right? It's, it's it's easy to see the you know the the growing role of cloud. It's easy to see the emergence of you know IoT and OT and IoT and you know all those things. It's easy to see the the impact that AI is is having and will continue to have. It's it's easy to see the emergence of of quantum computing and and the impact that that's going to have. And and then I think it's 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 not too difficult to see shifts in the if, if you like sort of the vendor landscape so you know a very clear pattern at the moment is the growing role that 
cloud vendors are playing in the security space. You know, you know, you know, Google threatened to so far. I think hasn't really managed to, but threatened to really disrupt things with. I forget now what their what their uh, offering is called. But with their, you know, their their, their SIEM and uh, intelligence offering, and Microsoft is doing it. I think on a grand scale, you know, they they really are changing the game, and they're very well positioned to do that. So those things, I think, are not too difficult to make predictions about. But what what interests me more, I think, about your question, is separating kind of cause and effect. You know, I, I think about it a little bit like one might think about what weather. You know, you, you can open the door, stick your head out and see, oh, it's raining and therefore I need an umbrella or it's windy and therefore I need a coat, you know, or snowy and therefore I need grippy shoes or, you know, mm-hmm. something. And that I kind of feel that's the space where we operate in, you know, we, we sort of stick our head out and go, oh, we need this. And then there's always someone standing. Yeah, very reactive. And I, I think there's always somebody standing by to sell us that thing. And ironically, often the the weather predictor, the weather prediction is also done by the person who's selling the umbrella. <laughs> So, you know, we're sort of in this, in a little bit of a, a slightly unholy kind of vortex there. But, but weather, as we know, is, is shaped by, by bigger systems. It's shaped by what we call climate. And, and climate is a function of, of sort of major systemic factors that, that shift often invisibly to us and, and then kind of create the reality that we experience when we stick our, our head out of the window. And I kind of feel that as an industry, we need to focus more on understanding those systemic factors and understanding where we play a role in them. Just like in climate, you know, we, we play a role in global warming through our behaviors. I think there are some that depends elements who you of ask. The, <laughs> that depends on who you ask. Yeah. You know, as a, as a flat earther, I feel strongly that um, <laughs> all the hot air just falls over the edge. That's so, right. I've got all my I've got my own views on that, but some people believe that there are these systemic factors and that we, as through our behavior, impact those systemic factors. And and I feel like those aren't conversations that that we have enough. And I and I feel like if we examine those systemic factors, we can just like in climate, perhaps start to develop models that will allow us to predict what the you know what what the likely short term and and localized impacts are going to are going to be. So that's kind of how me and my team have been approaching the question that that you just asked. You know, what does the the future look like? And I, I suppose if I can carry on one more minute, that, that's not a very satisfying answer for people who want to know. You know, what the, what the future is going to be. But but I think what I what I can do is say something about what I think some of those systemic factors are, and that we should be that we should be watching out for, and that we should be seeking to influence. And, and I really think that the one major one is the way our market is led. I think our market is created and led by vendors. And I, I work for a vendor. And there's, there's nothing wrong with vendors. But I don't think that vendors should be leading the charge. I don't think vendors should be describing what the problem is. I think that leadership needs to come from somewhere else. So that's the one. Now, I guess there's a massive bias there in that situation. Yeah, and, and and it's natural, right? It's it's, it's completely under it's completely understandable. Even the most benign person working in the most benign co- company, your your incentives will ultimately shape you know where you're going to put your time and energy. And I and I don't think that the, the vendors are well positioned to do that. And again, I'm I'm not saying they sh- they shouldn't be doing anything or shouldn't be, even be doing what they're doing. I'm just saying our industry or our community needs to be led from elsewhere. And one of the places I think 
which kind of brings me to my second point where there should be more leadership is from is from government. I, I really think that we we need to see more positive energy from from governments, more hard thinking about how regulations, laws, incentives, uh, spending shape the security space and less thinking about how uh, the security problem can be weaponized and, and exploited. I think that the the misdirection of energy by governments is uh, is significantly contributing to a problem that I don't think we're going to solve with technology in the in the short term. So those are just sort of two of the you know of those of those contributing factors. I, I I could carry on, but I, I don't think we've got time. Uh, well, I'd love love to hear more suggestions. To be honest. I think the other the other thing that plays a big role in creating the, the the problem that we have is the is the criminal ecosystem. So not the not the manifestations of that, you know, not 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 the the, the nuances of the malware or of the phishing campaign or of the exploit that the you know that the bad guys are are using, but fundamentally the the environment that they operate in and the incentives that shape that environment. I think if we can understand that better, firstly, we can start to predict the direction of things, but also I think we can start to tackle problems at their, at their roots. So for example, if you, if you, you know, if, if you examine for a little bit, the role that cryptocurrencies play, then it's very clear to see that certain forms of crime are going to emerge Right, it's the, it's not hard to 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 make predictions that are now uh, that now seem obvious in 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 hindsight, like uh, like like the you know the, the the growing problem of crypto jacking in the cloud is a, is a convergence of two systemic factors, right? The the, the one being the, the fact that the criminal ecosystem has mastered the art of using cryptocurrencies to move value around, and the other being this rapidly accelerating role of of cloud in our um, in our in our infrastructures. Like if, you, if you see those two things, then things like crypto jacking it become easy to call, and and you can see that crypto jacking is is likely to accelerate because mm. those two systemic factors are there. But similarly, if you if you look at the criminal ecosystem and you understand how they operate, you might be able to say things like it's obvious that if we want to stop things like ransomware from happening, then what we need to do is to stop the payment of ransoms because. Fundamentally, that ecosystem evolves around that that ability to move wealth from the victim to 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 the to the criminal. Up until recently, there was another weak point, which was that you could you could destroy the value of the of the ransom to the bad guy by having backups. So f- fundamentally, what happens with ransomware is you have this seller buyer dynamic, right? The the, the bad guy has something that the mm. victim alt- absolutely needs, and he knows he's got a ready market for it, and he's going to sell it at some at some price. So if the victim can get that product, his own data, from somewhere else, his backups, then that subverts that dynamic, and then you can sort of just you know you can destroy the ransomware problem. But with the uh, you know the, the 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 leaking and shaming dynamic that's emerged now with big game hunting. That destroys that avenue. The backups aren't helping you anymore, and so really, the only thing we can do is to stop the is to stop the flow of of money, and and that that goes back again for me to to the role of governments and regulations. I think we need strong leadership in that space, and that's not what's happening. What's happening is is we're you know we're buying better endpoint products and we're investing more in AI, and you know we're trying to um, 
I don't know, you know, detect and stop uh, encryption behavior, using vaccines. Those are all good things, but I, I honestly do not think that any of those things are going to ultimately solve this problem because the systemic forces are too powerful. The, the way to solve the problem is to subvert some of those systemic forces. And I think the most obvious one is the flow of value from the victim to the criminal. Makes a lot of sense. So that's, yeah, that's another example. And unfortunately, I don't think the words strong government and leadership are often linked in the same sentences much these days, depending on where you are. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I think that's, I think it's tragic. And I think it's, I think that downstream, it can have really negative consequences for us, a lack of leadership at this, at this time, because those systemic factors will continue to build. And, you know, as long as they continue to build, I, I don't think we're going to solve security problems fundamentally with you know with technology solutions no and last question i did put a question to you and, and i love the way that you suggested an alternative and and flipped i guess the the angle of the conversation or the, or the, the question itself so last question being i guess what things basically can businesses or should businesses be doing to reach the right kind of people yeah, thanks, Ricky. I, I appreciate this question because it's it's another kind of hobby horse of mine. And and really, my, my thinking around this started with was trying to tackle the question of diversity, particularly gender diversity. You know, the, the, how, how do we attract? How do we attract? And I mean, it sounds you know, it almost sounds paternalistic, as you said. But how do you attract more women into the industry? And I got to speaking with some uh, with some women about the about the problem. And one of the things that they suggested to me is that the language that we use to define the jobs that we want done is itself paternalistic. It's it's written mostly, you know, respectively by like old white guys like me. <laughs> and it views the problem, firstly, in a very functional way. You know, these are the kind of the five things that you will do, and these will be your KPIs, and this is how you'll operate and how you'll be incentivized which is not attractive to a lot of people in the in the industry you know i think smart people people with diverse backgrounds people other ethnicities other other, other genders may, maybe think about problems in different ways and and don't find the way we frame the job attractive and might be more interested if we frame the the, the role in, in in different ways for example by looking at it through the lens of fundamentally the problem that we're trying to trying to solve and by kind of sketching a sense of, of purpose, you know, the, again, the why, why are we here? What is it that we want you in this business to accomplish? And that's not necessarily to, you know, change firewall rules or respond to incidents, but to position us to, you know, to treat the, the data of our customers with the respect that it deserves. Help us solve that problem. And you might find yourself talking to entirely different people from entirely different backgrounds. But also, I think we might find ourselves thinking about the problem differently because you know you said it already we've since person been doing for 22 years and i said to you well not much has changed and we've sort of been doing the same things for 22 years and and, and it occurs to me that maybe people like me shouldn't be the ones describing the jobs that need to be done you know m maybe i've been thinking about it the same way for too long and what we need is is other people to think about how we describe the jobs that we want done so, you know, let's not talk about firewall engineers and threat analysts and incident responders. You know, let, let's let's talk about what we want done in terms of the why, in terms of the benign purpose. And what you might find is that maybe we can start to break those some of those paradigms, sort of break out of some of those boxes. 
both in terms of the people that we reach to work for us, but also in terms of how we approach the problems that we're trying to solve. It's a really good point. I Because I, I guess from my my lens on the industry, I, I see things and have different types of conversations that let's say are quite interesting. Most organizations do want to add diversity and it feels like for the right reasons, not mm. just to tick some boxes or some from a stats perspective. We, we had a situation this week where one of our customers, and this is not uncommon, but specifically asked us, you know, can we, can we try and look at some more female candidates? Like we want more diversity in our business. And I guess their way or suggestion was, you know, if we increase the, the budget by X, are we likely to, to sort of try and hopefully get more females and more, more diversity? And for me, the answer is sort of no. You know, it might do. We might attract more people. But generally, a lot of companies, like if you're looking for someone sort of senior, the pool of people is 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 what it is. It's very small. Mm. And, and unfortunately, mm. women make up you know if we're talking from a female perspective it's a very small number of of the industry and it's at the yeah. other end of the industry that you need to create more opportunities mm. because there's a lot more i guess diversity getting into the industry at the sort of more junior side or wanting to get into the industry but there's not enough opportunities for people in general i think mm. but that that's where i think we need more more roles but also like looking at job descriptions talking to you know females about applying for jobs or what's right for them and often they'll be put off applying for a role because they don't tick every single box on that job description mm. whereas mm. guys i don't know whether they're just more cavalier or what but more or, or more opportunistic but they're more willing to go for a role that they're not 100 percent fit for or they don't tick yeah. all the boxes but they go for it anyway whereas there are some people i guess regardless of gender or or backgrounds, but they'll be put off by a role because maybe they don't feel strong enough or they don't feel right for the role, even though they could yeah. be right for it. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard that. I think, I think there's sort of relatively well understood psychology around the, you know, men's inflated egos, <laughs> you know, versus, uh, you know, women's slightly more realistic view of their, of their capabilities. But I, I think you're sort of, you're sort of touching on, on some of it there, Ricky, is, is, is that we we need to get beyond sort of trying to drive numbers by recruiting harder or paying more to trying to get behind you know what it is that's attracting or or not attracting people to our to our space and i i think a, a good direction to take a good experiment at least is to involve some some women and some people from other backgrounds outside our space in the definition of those roles in describing what it is that we that we want because as i said i think you know as long as i keep creating the job descriptions uh, i'm just going to keep hiring people that look like me yeah Um, you know frankly people that look like me haven't really shifted the dial in terms (laughs) of security yet so maybe that's not that smart you know i'd like the way you're thinking about it and look that and overall thank you for sharing it it's been honestly fascinating listening to your background experience the story of sense post and and hopefully some positivity for the future as well yeah ricky thank you so much i I really appreciate you having me and i've really enjoyed our conversation and and i hope it it turns out to be useful for people i think it will and uh, yeah thanks for your time today all right we'll chat soon Thanks for listening. And if you've got any questions, comments, please reach out to me. You'll find me online anywhere, CyberSec Ricky, 
And if you would like to be involved in the future, maybe be a guest and then reach out as well. Thanks for your time. Have a great day.